and welcome to Sipping on Country. Today we have Vinny Shishelsky. Excellent. There you go. I nailed it, guys. I was so worried about that. Um, trumpet player here in Nashville, studio touring. You have. I actually. I wrote down a. Ho- I'm going to reach here. I wrote down a whole list of names because this guy has played with. You have played with everyone. You have recorded with a ton of names. I'm just going to throw a few out there right okay. while we're sitting. We have Leonard Skinner, Queen Latifah, Taylor Swift, Springsteen, Carrie Underwood, Vince Gill, Zach Brown Band. To name, that's just a handful. This is a handful of them. So, um, yeah, I mean, tell us a little bit about you and kind of how you got started. How'd you end up in Nashville? I've been, I've been very, first of all, I've been very lucky, but um, uh, Beth can tell you who's here behind the camera, my beautiful wife. I practice a lot. So, um, you know, I started trumpet when I was nine years old. My first trumpet teacher never told me it was hard. Al Carroll, thank you, Al. He's not, I don't think he's living anymore, but, um, and then just kind of, you know, I did junior high and high school and marching band and went to college and had no idea how to get from there to where I wanted to be. Um, one of the stories I love to tell is when, and you probably did this too, although you did it with different technology. My dad had a cassette player and, and, and I had a cassette player. And so I would take these duets and trios from my trumpet books and I would play into one. And then, I, so I would count it off one, two, three, four and play. And then I would hit stop, rewind, play that one, record both of them into the second cassette. And so I was multi-tracking when I was nine years old. I just Amazing. had no idea what I was doing. Right. I remember the first time I heard Chicago, the band, um, I was in the bus going to school. It was alive again. And I heard these little da-da, da And I said, man, that's a trumpet. I wonder how they do that. So I was intrigued with it from a very early age. Um, went to college, bummed around Baltimore playing in an R&B band, and then uh, moved to Nashville. Because the first thing you think of when you think of Nashville is trumpet. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was encouraged to do it, uh, but I just couldn't figure out, you know, I, I watched a TV show that was being produced at the time. And, uh, and I thought, man, I could do that. And I got here and I was like, where's my TV show? And I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of still waiting for that one, but, uh, uh, got, just got really, really lucky, uh, at the time. And, I had a gig when I first got here on the General Jackson, floating up and down the Cumberland River, okay. playing a show, and subbed out, got my first tour at the end of that year with Shelby Lynn, opening up for Kenny Rogers, and then started doing sessions, and and uh, it's been an amazing and incredible ride since then. Just like a lot of really super cool stuff that I never dreamed of when I was a kid. If If I could go back and tell myself what I would be doing now, I would have punched myself in the mouth because I was a liar, but it was just just been really, really cool. I mean, making the move to Nashville as a trumpet player was, did you kind of have roots in country music? Was that partly why you wanted to be here or was it purely someone's like, hey, just go to Nashville? Yeah, well, you know, I was in Baltimore at the time and the scene up there, you know, it's a great town, but it just, I, I saw the finiteness of that scene. You know, I was working in an R&B band five nights a week and, kind of barely scraping by and um, I thought I can at least do that there I know there's all different kinds of music because of what I had seen and what I had heard so um, I've done a lot of country and a lot of old school like Tanya Tucker and Reba and I guess Winona's old school now Um, you know that all that stuff in in the 90s um, just got lucky to get called to do that stuff but then Nashville is a bit more than, you know, as you know, is yeah. a bit more than country. And so, you know, the Skinner thing, rock and roll, yep. bad company, you know, and then all the way up through a huge part of my career has been um, contemporary Christian and gospel, black gospel music. Okay. Um, and it's just that is my favorite stuff because it's higher, faster, louder on the trumpet. And it really features the horns. And I came up under a um, the godfather of of. Uh, gospel horns a fellow named Lloyd Berry who's still uh, really carving away at his craft and and he was he is he is a big reason why I've enjoyed the career that I have really really incredible so the country thing was it's funny you've probably heard that story about the Grand Old Opry when Big Jim Horn who's a saxophone player was on there I think with John Denver and uh, Porter Wagner said 
we're not going to let them bugles on stage or boy, you know, or something to that effect. And so it's been a, it's, it's been really interesting having done the Opry a, a bazillion times too, just being on there and kind of being allowed into, into that country thing. Right. Um, most recently just, uh, did some dates in New York with John party. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And he is, he and the band and the whole, the crew, everybody so pro, so great. And John's a hoot to hang out with. He's very accessible, which is different. Um, as an artist, like if you want to go up and say, mm -hmm. man, I had a great time. He's like, you know, come on in, let's have a whiskey and we'll talk about it. So uh, we did a Christmas record for him last year nice. um, and, and did some dates in New York, which was just fantastic. So it's it's like a full circle thing. Um, the studio's really busy. The band's really busy. It's it's wonderful. I love that. Yeah. And I mean, obviously saying when you think of Nashville, you do not automatically go Nashville trumpets. <laughs> to be honest, Nashville and any sort of wind instrument, right? Yeah. It's guitar, even piano is a little. Yeah, right, right. Um, but... I mean, I guess there's pros and cons to that, right? Because there's, I would assume, there's not a huge amount of seasoned players in town um, doing that. So the the pool is a lot smaller to pick from, which is great for you because not only are you already kind of mastering your craft, but you've got all these opportunities open when people do need that, mm -hmm. you're the person they call. Mm -hmm. It was definitely like that when I came here. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> it was definitely like that when I came here. There was a handful of guys, really incredible world-class players, that were carving out a living in, just in the studio. Okay. Uh, matter of fact, when I first came, it was kind of a no-no to tour if you wanted to be a session guy. I've actually heard that this, one of my other guests was talking about this same thing, and I think he said that he um, he ended up actually going out with Reba um, for six weeks, and the whole time he was out, people would be like, "Oh, can you do this session?" He's like, "Oh, actually, I'm booked. Like, I've already got a session." Yeah, booked. Yeah, yeah. He's like, because he did not want to tell people no. that he was on tour because he was like, that would stop me from getting work, which is wild. Well, it's it's a it's a bit different now. A lot of the guys that were really um, hard about not going out on the road are now going out mm -hmm. on the road because um, the you know a lot of the artists are the pay scale has actually come up um, sessions have kind of stayed the same you know they've gone up through the union you know five or ten percent every couple of years but the, the salaries on the road can get can get pretty good so you can do that I was kind of a rebel because I was broke and I was like I'll just take whatever comes in so I went on the road and I, I would fly back on a on a Monday or a Tuesday excuse me, do a session and then fly back out to the road, even if I lost money right. to keep the account. But as far as the players go now mm -hmm. with Nashville kind of being the it city, there's so many more great players and yeah. so many more young players that are coming up and, and, uh, and really sounding really, really great. Um, and I've always encouraged people to move to town because I don't think you can take anything from somebody who is established Right. It's very rare that that happens. Like, you know, a new guy in town is going to come into town and go, I'm ready for sessions, you know <laughs> what I mean? And and it, it just doesn't work that way. Right. But there's such a great a great group of still older guys that are playing, uh, complemented by a bunch of younger guys that are really, really incredibly talented. So um, more and more people are coming uh, where they used to go to L.A. or they used to go to New York or mm -hmm. Chicago. They're coming to Nashville. All the video game stuff, a lot of TV and film stuff is happening yeah. here. And, of course, all I do is records. I mean, I mean that's not, you know what I mean. That's, right. yeah, yeah. that's what I'm recording. Okay. Um, occasionally a little bit of stuff for TV, a little bit of stuff for film, but people call me to play on their records. So I feel really lucky. Right. Yeah. Would you say, so the majority of your career, has it, has it been studio session work? Um, at first it was live. And then it was live and studio, and more recently, in the last ten years or so, it's been the majority of studio. But I, I my last um, big road gig was with Martina. Okay. She did a R and B record, and we we did it over at Blackbird. We were just talking about nice. Blackbird yeah. earlier, and uh, it was a great record and an incredible band. Again, a, an incredible crew, really pro. John McBride comes out and mixes front of house. You, you just can't. There's nobody better in the world than that guy. And um, and that was really good. We were supposed to do it for four months, and we wound up on the on the gig for two years. Wow! Did like a hundred and eighty or two hundred dates over two two years, and so 
Weekends, leave on Thursday, come home on Sunday. That's kind yeah. of the country thing. Yeah. Unless you're going out west, and then you do two or three weeks out west, mm -hmm. and you come back home. So it's And, and we, did, we did sessions on the road. My buddy Tyler Summers, who's a saxophone player, Canadian, um, did a Grammy-winning record for Kirk Frank Franklin, who is a contemporary gospel artist, in the back of a fifth wheel at a rodeo. Wow. The bedroom of, the, of a fifth wheel. He was like sitting on the mattress with the microphone in front of him, laying down all these saxophones. He and Phil Lassiter, Phil had done the trumpets and sent them to him. And we were there for like maybe two days and he was nowhere to be found for, he was just there for 24 hours a day recording five or six songs on this record in the back of a trailer. That's hysterical. Wild. Yeah, that's, crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, and he's got the Grammy on his wall for it, you know, the certificate, so. It's a story just, to tell, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that's the mix of country, that's the best mix of country because we were there to play at the rodeo and and uh, R&B that, right. that you can get, you know. Um, we would go on stage and play with Martina on all of her country hits and all of the R&B hits, and he would go back into the trailer and play this super funky gospel thing. It was it was remarkable, Su super cool. But yeah. it really just goes to show as well how far things have come because you just you couldn't have done that. Like that, there would be a time where trying to do, you would come out with the worst recording. Absolutely. Like, and I mean, we were talking about technology, but just when it works in those cases i mean like it is an amazing thing to be yeah. able to just be like yeah i'm just gonna go to the bus for a couple hours and then well years ago we were we were out with kirk franklin i did a I did a record for him back in like 2000 or 2001 called the rebirth and it was a really great record it was a live record and then we toured the show with donnie mcclurkin and and uh and uh, a bunch of really incredible young gospel artists and the drummer on that gig was a producer and we were putting horns on a record. And so we recorded the trumpet and the saxophone parts in a hotel room. Thank goodness security never came by because we were blowing our brains out, right? <laughs> and then when we did the baritone sax, we took it in the bathroom because it has such a, you know, when you sing in the bathroom, you mm -hmm. sound so much better. Same thing with playing. We went in the bathroom, put a microphone up, and recorded the baritone sax in the, in the bathroom. Oh, I love it. Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> So when it comes to playing studio live, do you do you have a preference? Like, do you prefer going out on the road? I feel like it's a, it's a very different discipline. I feel like when you're in the studio, you cannot afford any. I mean, it has to be perfect every single bit. I guess like can maybe have a little more fun on the road or. I I really enjoy the challenges of the studio and and uh, my studio at the house, which is an overdub studio specifically for horns. But I have a set of drums I can cut bands in there and stuff. But uh -huh. I will I'll sit in there. I'm not too far from where Beth works. Beth works from home three days a week, and so she hears me play parts over and over because I stack myself. So not only if I make a mistake do I have to play it over, but if I'm doing four trumpet parts, you you have to play it four different times. I, I love the creativity of sitting in the studio and being spontaneous. I love playing with the guys that I play with because they're super duper creative. And I love them because I want to spend eight hours in the studio with them. Right. Um, the road, the road's a grind. It de It's definitely different because you don't get paid for the two hours that you're on stage. You get paid for the other 22 um, in my studio and pretty much the studio work that I do, I can sort of pick the people that I work with. Right. Um, and I'm a cheerleader for them and then they're a cheerleader for me. When you're on the road, um, you don't, you don't get to pick the people that you're with. On a rare occasion, they'll say, Hey, put, put together a horn section. Right. But, um, it's, it's a real grind and, and being away from home and, and my wife and grandkids and the dogs and stuff like that. I, I'm kind of a homebody. I really like being there. And, and uh, at 4 o'clock every day, I get done in the studio, and I walk past my wife and encourage her gently to get off the computer because she's not getting paid <laughs> overtime. And she's like, I'm closing it down right now. And then we go downstairs, <laughs> and I cook dinner, and, and, and we walk the dog, and it's it's pretty awesome. But, you know, I'm old, so... <laughs> there is, tour life isn't all it's cracked up to be there, especially if you end up on those tours with someone that you're not a huge fan of, and you just then you're stuck in close quarters yeah. with all these people, and you just, <laughs> yeah. you know... I, I played with some remarkable artists. I mean, I spent uh, 14 or 15 years with Lyle. Love it. And um, it, it, the band was just 
every night just something new and something different and his songwriting is so extraordinary he was a great boss um and but you know winona and kirk and and martina and uh, you know all the way back to the beginnings um where you know with shelby and kenny and and then uh michael english it just it's been really really remarkable what i love to do is like what i did with john this past time we went to new york for four or five days getting up at 1 30 in the morning or 2 30 in the morning eastern time to do a morning television show not my favorite thing in the world i'm i mean until i have coffee i have fangs and i'm kind of you know <laughs> so uh waiting you know sound checking at 4 30 and then waiting around till nine o'clock to go on thrilling in that my mom could see me on tv and and my wife uh could see me on tv and and the kids and stuff like that um but doing that for four or five days everybody's rowing the same boat everybody has to get up early like that and and you're all a team. I love that stuff. I love that stuff. Um, so that, those are my favorite kinds. Like kind of hit it and quit it, right. and uh, make a, just a crap ton of money and then come home. But sounds like a <laughs> sounds like a good time. <laughs> <It's> good to- <laughs> <laughs> so when did um, when did studio work kind of really kick into gear for you? So obviously, you started out going out on the road. At what point? Was that a choice that you made to kind of not go out so much and move towards studio, or did it just kind of was it a natural progression? I think if the if the thousand dollar a day gig had come up at any point in my career, I would have said yes, please. Yeah. Um, but you know, those are few and far between, and so you you know, um, I had a gig when I first moved to town. I was doing the Christmas show at the Opryland Hotel. It was great, six nights a week, sometimes two shows. Paid a lot of money, paid for kind of moving here and first and last month's rent and getting yeah. established and all that stuff. And and then I had like a three-month period, two-and-a-half-month period where I was un, underemployed because the Christmas show ended. And we had spent all that money. Um, middle of January, I get a call um, for my very first session. So I had been here. People were like, oh, you won't get a session for about a year. And I had been here like six weeks, and I got my first call. And I was like... A scared death. It was a TV theme song for TNN, you know, the the Nashville network back okay. in the day, and it was a big orchestra, and it was, it was Bradley's Barn. Scared to, I couldn't. I was petrified because I knew the you know the pressure. But at the end of it, and eventually when I got paid for it, I was like, oh yeah, yeah. This this is this is what I want to do because of the. It's just such a challenge mentally. People, people who do it understand. Yeah. People who watch it on TV don't have as much of a glimpse of it. But the mental focus that you have to put into this to try and be... So you have a song for me, you've written a chart. You put it down on the stand. It's the first time I've seen it. Mm-hmm. And then you hit record. I have to play that song like I've known it for 20 years. And it's the favorite song I've ever played in my life on every single record because that energy that you put into it, it comes out on on tape. I mean, it just comes out on the record. You can hear that joy and that you can, you know, or the angst or the whatever you are trying to communicate. So um, basically, when I figured out I could make enough money doing sessions and not go on the road, that's when it changed for me because um, because I just love it so much. I just love it. And some people just don't. They want that crowd and they want that energy and they, right. wanna, they want that immediate feedback. But when an artist, just this morning, um, I did a, a session at the studio yesterday and I, I actually added some things that they didn't ask for, <laughs> which can, can kind of get you into trouble sometimes. But, you know, nowadays, you can just take that stuff and just delete it. Right. She was over the moon and just kept texting and saying, oh, my gosh, this is, oh, my gosh, and more to come and this and that. And the other. That kind of feedback for me is just really, really wonderful. Right. And and then sitting at the, I've done sessions, especially with Lloyd, um, where we would play, and it was the hardest thing I'd ever played in my life. I looked at it and said, I can't play this. And then an hour later, went in and listened to it, and it was like an out-of-body experience. Like, if I heard this on the radio, first of all, I would find out who played it. 
And I couldn't believe that. I know I had just done it, right. but I couldn't believe that I had just done it. And that just, I'm getting chills right now. It's just, it's so thrilling. And it's every day. Right, so it's like, yeah. And Matt, something that you're so passionate about as well, to be able to step back and then hear it and just be like, like this is, I, right? this is it. Yeah, right. yeah. amazing. Yeah, and, and to be a part of, of writing. I never thought I wanted to be a writer. I'm not a songwriter. Um, I make up goofy lyrics to songs. We mishmash stuff at home all the time. Beth's the Beth is the queen. My wife is the queen of starting one song and ending it with another. Yeah, mostly the 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 uh, the fight song for her for her college. She she's a big uh, Buckeye fan, Ohio State. Mm -hmm. She starts singing the the Buckeye theme song and then ends up in Hava Nagila. <laughs> I I don't know how she puts it together. <laughs> I don't know how she puts it together, but it's it's pretty awesome. So I'm not really a songwriter, but if I if you sent me a song that was "Come to Jesus" and whole notes and all horns playing, I could put more horns on top right. of it. And so I feel like that's kind of my my thing. And and uh, I was on a record years ago with a guy named Joe Pace, who's another uh, contemporary gospel guy. Really, this big, beautiful, low voice. Like when he talks to you on the phone, you feel like you're talking to God. <laughs> And uh, and I, I wrote and arranged the horns, and it got nominated for a Grammy. And I was like, I was just, I, I just, it's like a pinch, right. pinch me moment, you know, because like when I was in high school, I, I just, you know, I had no idea how or why or what I knew what I wanted to do. I just had no idea. And, and again, my 16-year-old self would have been like, shut up. Right. And I mean, as, <laughs> as a musician, as an artist, I mean, that is just the pinnacle of, you know, like, it's the Grammy, you yeah, know, where, yeah. where else do you want to go yeah, uh, yeah. from there? Like, cause it's, and it's the recognition of all, all that hard work, all the years, the hours spent practicing, mm -hmm. spent honing that craft for mm -hmm. it to pay off and know that, you know, like people, people hear it like that must be. And it's peers. So, so, you know, it's, it's, it's really cool. The voting process is peers. And so, you know, every year when the Grammys come on, it's so funny because I, I, I prepare myself for the Facebook post. Oh, the Grammys suck this year and the music is different and blah, 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 blah. You know, go back to the 60s when it was, you know, like <laughs> we were all high and we didn't know any different. And, and I always say the same thing. Um, it changes the Grammys every year. And I don't care for everything, but there's some incredibly, somebody who can sit in their bedroom and make a, an entire record with their brother in their bedroom and then win a Grammy is to me a testament to them as writers and creatives yeah. and, and the technology that exists. Like you can, you know, you could be, mm -hmm. you could be in your little snuggy singing right. your vocals, man, you know, and it's just, it's really, really amazing. But I always say the same thing. Um, uh, it changes when you, when you appear and I, I've never won a Grammy myself, but I have appeared on, um, over 50 nominated and 25 winners. That counts. And that counts. It, it, change, it changes how you feel about the ceremony, no matter what. Right. It just does. And I, and I always, it's like when people talk about going on the road with a particular artist. Um, my favorite one is, well, I, I don't want to mention her name, but she's very popular now. And people bust on her because, you know, 20 of her top number one hits have the same chord progression. And I'm like, it all changes. If she calls you and says, we're doing two years, uh, 40 weeks a year, and I'm going to pay you 10 grand a week, would you take the gig? If And the first answer, if it's no, is a lie and is unacceptable because almost everybody I know would would go out there. Right, yeah, why? You know, and, and, and contribute to, like if you go to one of those concerts where you're playing for 60 or 80,000 people, and I went to a Springsteen concert one time when he was at the Meadowlands in the 90s sold out like 16 shows like gave the receipts each night the net receipts to the guys in the band as a tour bonus wow just think about that for just a minute 60,000 people at back then probably $100 a ticket so that's life changing right yeah that's insane so, knowing that but then sitting by the soundboard you know with a with a ice cold cooler of beers right there and watching the boss and Every single soul in the entire building 
singing every word. I don't care who you are, man. That is a life-changing experience. And it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't have to be the coolest gig in the world. Right. You know, it's just like, it's what you make of it. And, and you know, I would love for, I would love for her to call me and offer me $10,000 a week for two years or 40 <laughs> weeks. That's like you pay off your house for right. that stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you come back and everything's okay. You know what I mean? And then you tell people, like, when I was with Lyle, um, I did a jingle. I, I used to do jingles uh, in the 90s for a friend of mine who was my youth group leader at my church in high school. And and full circle, you know, 20 years later, I'm working for him. And, uh, and he... I, he Back then, you would take the song, finished song, jingle, you would bounce it off a satellite to Chicago. There was no transferring it. It would take, right. o, you know, overnight to transfer. And so the guy in Chicago is like, okay, tell me about this. You know, it was a beer commercial or something like that. And and he said, and Rob said, I've got Lyle Lovett's trumpet player on this. And the guy said, I don't even have to listen to it. Sold. We're done. That's... It's pretty high praise uh, uh, for someone to just hear your name and be well, like, all right. No, what, Lyle's name, not like my fair. name. He, well, doesn't, yeah. he doesn't know who the heck I am, <laughs> but the fact that I played but, for him. Fair. And so any of those kind of any of those kind of high-profile gigs, I mean, it, like, it really sets you up for a long time. Right. Really sets you up for a long time. So I would say to the musos out there, don't be, don't be silly. Don't be silly. Take the gig and, yeah. and enjoy the benefits of it, and then, and then take what you've been given, uh, you know, and... and and steward it properly. Hang on to that right. money. We still have a little bit of money in the bank from when we were with Martina. Right. We called it Martina Rich. <laughs> yeah. You want to go on vacation? Sure. <laughs> I love it. I love yeah, it. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. <laughs> and I mean, the thing as well, just as a musician, is um, once you get established, obviously it's a lot better. But the truth is, at any point, you could just find yourself in a dip where there's no gigs. You know, no one's calling you to go out on the road. All of a sudden studio sessions slow down mm -hmm. and and so yeah like even even the gigs that maybe you know money aside you're not that keen on if if you can get yeah get what you can and everything opens doors you never know who you're going to meet on stuff and like you say like pl just playing with Lyle Lovett like being able to say I played with him the respect he has um, and I know that uh, one of my previous guests, uh, Tommy Harden. Oh, I love Tommy. Yeah, Tommy's my. F I love Tommy. Yeah. Um, when he, when he first came to town, um, he kind of got taken under the wing of Eddie Bears. Yeah. And he said, you know, just having his name and being like Eddie's been recommending me. Right. He was like, I got gigs with people not even questioning it because yep. this guy's recommending me. Yep. You know, and and it really. It, it pays off to know people and you just, you never know who you're going to meet in any sort. My first, my first road gig was with Shelby Lynn. She did a record called Temptation and she was an incredible singer. She still is an incredible singer and her sister was along. Um, Alison Moore. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Yep. They're just two voices of two angels um, and a crazy good band. Um, J.D. Blair was playing drums and he eventually, um, Played for uh, oh the Canadian girl that just did a big comeback tour. Bam 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 do do dan dan. What's oh that? Shania Twain. Shania Twain. Yeah, I'm sorry, Shania. Um, that but, Canadian chick. Right, yeah, right, I, I know, right? <laughs> Golly, uh, all of Canada hates me now. Um, so he played with her, Victor Krause, who is Allison Krause's brother, and um, you know has played with Lyle and g good God, everybody. You know what I mean? Um, Pat Burgesson who was um, Chet Atkins' guy for a long time on guitar. Okay. He also plays harmonica, incredible uh, musician. Um, Rod Magaha, who is one of the best human beings I've ever known, incredible trumpet player, wonderful graphic, uh, a, a visual artist. Um, he got me my first gig with Lloyd, who I wound up doing 2,500 records with. Wow. Because, wow. because we were on the road together with Shelby. Okay. But the big one... Not that that's not big enough. My buddy Todd Burns, he went on to write hundreds of thousands of cues for movie and TV in L.A. He's back in Nashville now. Um, Dennis Taylor, who passed but was an incredible saxophone. Tom McKinley, who played with one of the O'Neill Young. 
Okay, went on to play with Neil Young. Charles Rose, trombone player with the Muscle Shoals horns. So fame, you know, yep. all that stuff down there. His first gig with the Muscle Shoals horns was in 1974, and it was Elton John's second U.S. tour. That's, yep. Like traveling around literally on a 747 with chefs and a bar and, a you know, that's when Elton was... He was dirty. He wasn't clean yet. You know what I mean? So it was a big party. They would get off the plane, walk down the gangplank, get into a limo, warm up on the way to the show, go to the back stairs, go up, play the show, stadium. They had a beer roadie. They had yes. like a sign where they would they would do this, and a, and a, a hand would come out and pour <laughs> more beer. And, uh, I need one of them for this show. Yeah, yeah, no, no kidding. It just kind of pops up <laughs> in the middle. Right? Um, Charles been playing with the Muscle Shoals horns that long. Called me for my first session after that tour, and uh, it was down at um, Muscle Shoals Sound on the river Malico. When I was twenty one or twenty two, I had an R and B band, and one of my favorite songs that we did was uh, "Who's Making Love to Your Old Lady" by Johnny Taylor. Okay. Horn set. Uh, the, the the vocals were hysterically funny and well performed. The band sounded great. Some of my favorite horn parts. I'm sitting down at the at the studio. I didn't ask any questions when he called me. None. None questions. So I'm sitting there. I'm like, hey, man, who are we working for? And by the way, how much are we making? And he went, he never told me how much we were making. But he did tell me it was Johnny Taylor. I was just like, what in the world? So along with Charles is Harvey Thompson. Harvey's been with the Muscle Shoals Horn since 1965, where... They would go to fame, and they were on salary. They had no idea who they were working for. They would just show up at 10 o'clock every day, and they would make records all day, hmm. and then probably play craps and lose all the money they made that <laughs> day, you know, and then, and then rinse and repeat five right. days a week. Harvey calls me, like, maybe three months after I met him and says, Vinny C. <laughs> hey, Harv. Hey, you want to go uh, maybe play some horns with Lyle Lovett? That's how I got the Lyle Lovett gig. So Shelby heard me at a club, right. hired me for the gig. The band leader at the time turned around during rehearsal and said, I don't know who you are. I know you're a new guy. But if you suck, I'm going to fire you. And I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, and so I was like, God. I mean, like, you know, the whole bedside manner was right. not it was not his forte. Yeah, but funny. he turned out to be a really really sweet guy and i guess you didn't suck because you ended up i did tour, not so, and then here we are <laughs> right so i'm on the band and i'm walking out and i know shelby's there so the so the band leader on that so i was working the general jackson six days a week if i took a night off it really cramped us up financially i mean it wow. tore us up but um i got permission to do that and i went to this club and i sat in and and i was standing in the lead spot and, and the band leader came up and said I don't want you to play lead on the first set. I want you to play lead on the second set. And I was like, wah, wah. So I did my little pump, stupid, you know. And then the second set came. And during the first song, Shelby walked into the club and sat down. And she was there because that guy, the band leader, had called her and said, this is who you want on the road with you. And had saved my chops for the second set so, that you so I could shine. And I'm walking out, and I'm, I'm kind of making my... It's like a teeny tiny club. And I'm making my way over, you know, by her table. And she grabs me, and she says, Hey, I'll put a band together. I said, Yeah, I, I know. And she said, she said, uh, I want you to play trumpet for me. I drove home that night. I swear I was... I rolled down my window in my 1985 Chevrolet truck that was only running on three cylinders at the time. And I howled at the moon. It was absolutely incredible, and that is how all of that stuff happened. It's, yeah, I mean, it's so crazy. And I mean, the, the industry is so big, but it's also, I mean, everyone's connected. There's a lot of people, but everyone knows everyone, mm -hmm. you know, and it is, yeah, that who you know, not what you know a lot mm -hmm. of the time. But what an amazing first gig <laughs> to be able to go out on. So stupid, man. Like, Kenny Rogers, we opened up for Kenny. We were doing two shows a week. I know. Two shows a day, six days a week. I made seven hundred and fifty bucks a week, and I can't—I just can't remember being more thrilled in my life. But the the 
the funny story, Kenny's gone now, but if he was here, he could confirm this. We were, <clears throat> Kenny loved the horns, invited us to play with him. So we're in the second week of the tour. We had just done Thanksgiving. The day after Thanksgiving, they have a turkey bowl. Okay. Turkey bowl is American football. Uh, played in a you know in a field somewhere. We were staying at this hotel, and and Kenny went and bought footballs, and we all went out there. And I said to the guys on the crew, because I was I was big Vin at that time. Um, I was close to three hundred pounds, and uh, I and so I was going to be center, full time center, because I couldn't run. Well, Kenny was right across from me, and he was trying to get to the quarterback. And I said to the guys on the crew, I said. Uh, I mean, does he want to play, or should right. I let him go? Well, like, yeah. And they're like, oh, no, kick his ass. I don't know, can I say ass? Um, yeah, oh, yeah, he wants you to. And so I was beating him up really bad. And, and eventually, like, we wind up in a pile on the ground, and he's like, Vinny, what are you doing, man? This is not the NFL, blah, blah, blah. I come into the show that night. We're playing, and Kenny's on stage after we had opened up for him, and his manager comes up on stage and helps him on with his jacket because I had dislocated his shoulder. So I'm like, holy crap, what am I going to do? Right? Hey, he's did, the one that wanted to play football. He did, and, and the guys on the crew are kind of going, <laughs> <laughs> dummy. So later that week, <clears throat> Kenny had asked us to come and play with him. He, you know, he used to play uh, bass. I think it was the Kingsman, his first band. He was just this nerdy young guy, still had the beard, you know, kind of 60s glasses, and he played bass. Well, he wanted to play Stomping at the Savoy with, with the horn section, bring okay. us back up. And uh, we were thrilled. So his big, giant manager comes back, and he says, all right, Kenny wants to talk to all you guys. We're in the dressing room. And, and, we're, and we're like, okay. He said, but not you, Vinny. And I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> I mean, I was like, I'm, I've been fired. I, I It's the first gig I've ever had, and I know I'm going to be fired. This is awful. I sat there for what seemed like 10 hours. It was probably five minutes. And I'm just rocking back and forth going, oh, my God, you really blew it, man. You're going to have to go home till, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the manager comes back, and he says, all right, Kenny wants to talk to you now, now that he's talked to the guys. And I'm like, shit. So I walk down the hall, and I go in, and the whole place explodes in laughter. And Kenny's kind of sitting at the front of the table like the godfather. And he said, that'll teach you to mess with me, boy. And that was <laughs> it. So I didn't get fired. Thank God. Oh, but, the, you know, just all those different, I could ramble on and bore people to death. I'm sure everybody is asleep by now that's watching this podcast. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you know, those are the stories, though, that no one's... Everyone who went to that show is probably like, "What's going on? Like, why is this? Why is this guy right. helping him on with his jacket?" Now yeah. they know. Yeah. Now they know. Yeah, they do. It's because of you. Well, later in the tour, then my mother, who was a huge Kenny Rogers, oh my God, just like melted when he would, she would see him on TV. Of course, my dad was like, "He's not that great." Oh yes, he is. That beard, he's so sexy. So, we were in, uh, we were in New Jersey. Uh, at this theater in the round. It was the closest thing to Baltimore, which is where my, or Salisbury, which is where my parents were living. <clears throat> and I invited them up and got them tickets. And then we got the VIP thing. And so we're walking up in line, and the manager, again, the big guy, says, The only thing that we ask is that nobody touch his beard. And, you know, he really doesn't like that. So I was like, Okay, mom, listen. Whatever you do, you can go up, you can, you know, you right. can give him a little goose, a Christmas goose or whatever early and don't touch his beard. She's like, okay, okay. She's super nervous, you know. Yeah. She walks up and it's the three of us and we're getting a picture taken. The first thing she does is reach up and just like, <laughs> oh my, I've always wanted to touch your beard. I'm like, mom. <laughs> she probably doesn't remember that because 15 minutes later I was like, mom, you touched his beard. She's like, what? what? Just, just, she just was out of body, out. man. She was out. And of course, my dad's still like, Kenny Rogers. <laughs> so, yeah, that that whole tour was like, whoosh, whoosh, and I funny. thought I was going to get fired again, you know, because of my mom. <laughs> yeah, well. Could you imagine that? You get fired from a tour because your mom touched his beard. Yeah. How do you tell that story? <laughs> right, guys, it was all going yeah, so well. Yeah. And then. Yeah. And they're, and they're all like, oh, sure, Vinny. Yeah. <laughs> and one of those. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I got a million of those goofy stories, all of which Beth, my wife, has heard 
9,000 times. She's rolling her eyes right now, aren't you? No. Every single one. Oh, God. Is he going to talk about <laughs> Kenny Rogers again? Yeah. It's a good one, though. That was a good one. <clears throat> yeah, there's a couple in there like that that are really good. Lyle, uh, the first week we played with Lyle, right after Harvey called me for Lyle, we were in Boulder, Colorado. It was gorgeous. It was in the fall. The leaves were changing. I was like, this is just magical. I had no idea how much money I was making. No idea. We were kind of going out to audition because Lyle, before that, had been using four saxes. Now he wanted to go trumpet, bone, and sax. And so we are in this little teeny tiny playhouse that probably held, I don't know, maybe 600, 800 people. And we were doing five nights in a row. It was a radio thing or something like that that they had out there. And, uh, the dressing room for the horns was down this really steep set of ladder stairs in the basement under the stage. So we had been rehearsing and everything was going great. When we were with Law, we would do like the first 45 minutes and then he would kind of peel it down to, excuse me, just him and Hagen, who was the cello player. Okay. And then he would build it back up. So we had like, you know, 45 minutes in the middle of the show where we would in-depthly talk about our performance, you know. <laughs> As we, as we drank, silly. So I got my jacket off. And again, this is Big Vin. Harvey Thompson's about, about just about as big as a toothpick. And Charles, uh, Charles got his feet up with his shoes off. And we're talking about how awesome we are and how we're doing so great on the show. And what do you think, Harvey? You think, because we were auditioning. Right. Do you think he's going to hire? Well, I don't know, Vinny C., you know, blah, 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 blah. And so at the end of the break in the middle of the show, Lyle would introduce the horns. From Muscle Shoals, uh, from the Muscle Shoals Horns, Muscle Shoals, Alabama, Harvey Thompson. And Harvey would walk out and everybody would clap. And then he would introduce me and then Charles. Well, we're down there and on the set list, we've got like three songs left to go. Right? We're, mm -hmm. we're good. <laughs> Talking. And we hear, ladies and gentlemen, from Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and the Muscle Shoals Horns, Harvey Thompson. And we're in the basement, down the set of stairs. So... Charles is trying to find his, it was like a Three Stooges, Miss Charles is trying to find his shoes, and we're ripping everything up. The meanwhile, Lyle has not said another word. So He's just, just standing there, and that eyebrow just goes up like, hmm, you know? And the, and the place is like, hmm, then it starts to erupt into a little bit, like, what's going on? You know? And then kind of, because Lyle's just stone-faced. He loved that. Else. said nothing else. We go up the stairs. I'm trying to put on Harvey's, jacket and he's got mine on and so we finally we go out on stage harvey's got my big ass jacket on that he can make into a triple breasted i mean you know and i'm holding kind of holding his over my arm awkwardly and we walk out on stage and everybody thunderous applause well harvey walks out thunderous applause and i'm like this is my second gig and i'm gonna get fired from this one <laughs> so it was just like it was really Good God, hysterically funny. We talk about that whenever we see each other because we just, we had no way. And, and it turns out, as I learned more about Lyle, totally on purpose. He, he knew we were down there just kind of, you so know, he's like, <laughs> like flossing our teeth and whatnot. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure he suspected that we were having a cerveza or two. But, oh, my gosh, so funny. So, so very. And he never said a word to us about it. Never. Never. He just got his little chuckle, went on to his bus, and we moved on, and we got hired, and I stayed on that gig from 93 to 2007. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, very cool. That is... Those, and again, like, I love it. I love those stories. <laughs> you see? Love it. Get it? Love it. Love it. Hey. <laughs> it's, 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 Pun intended, right? right? Yeah, I totally did that on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> so... When you go in and you are doing studio sessions for people, when those artists then eventually tour, now, I imagine, like, with guitarists and stuff, I feel like you, you can get a guitarist to go out on the road. I mean, is it is it different with, like, horn sections? Do they tend to then go, well, these are the guys that recorded, so we're going to take them out? I would imagine it's hot. I mean, I, I honestly don't know enough about, about trumpet and and that sort of area of for musicians like they tend to take you out on the road rather than hire a new set of people i don't know how the rhythm section world works i know sometimes that if if you as an artist hire a producer a well-known producer they have a crew mm -hmm. 
uh, one of the guys that was out with Lyle was Matt Rollins. And he was like a double scale, three a day, six day a week guy for 20 years. Like he really did well. Um, but Lyle would get him to go out on the road because that was his first, very first gig. And Lyle would, you know, Lyle just had this rapport with him and, and he paid him, you know, really well. Um, but a lot of times, like on the John Party record I was just talking about, he used his own band on the record. Okay. It was pretty cool. So those guys are naturally kind of built in to... Um, but the last one I was telling you about with Martina, John, uh, I was at another gig. John took me out on the bus and played the thing and played the song for me, and I was like, holy crap, loud. John is, John likes it loud. It was amazing. It sounded so good. Um, he said, well, we want to tour it. And I want to get the guys to play it on the record. And I said, okay, you got it. So everybody except for one guy who didn't want to go okay. was was on the record. That's easy. Um, like with, like with, I, I kind of have my fingers crossed a little bit with John Party. I'm hoping that he, now that he's heard his stuff with horns, that he's not going to be able to live without us. But I don't know how that, I don't know what that looks like. So some people will, um, like I've got a gig coming up at the end of the month with Frankie Valley. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's playing at the uh, uh, Grand Ole Opry. Oh, very cool. Yeah, and th that's one of my favorite gigs. The band leader is just this super energetic, jubilant human being that's like, when you see him, it's like you haven't you haven't seen him for a hundred years. But then you just pick up right, you know. So um, they have a saxophone player, mm -hmm. but they hire trumpet and trombone in each one of the towns that they go to. Huh. So that's one way to do it. You got a guy from Nashville that's familiar with the material. I would book the, the, the guys. When we got there to the gig, I would talk through. We'd do a long rehearsal at Soundcheck. They would play the gig. Okay. Then there's the all Nashville section, which would likely be most of the guys that played on the record, although I know a couple of them that are doing other gigs. Right. Tenor players playing with Eric Church. You know, the baritone player is really solid with the Nashville Symphony and does all the shows and has two kids that are teen, you know, just getting to be teenagers. He doesn't really want to go on the road. Right. So then you kind of make the, the next best choice and everybody can play. Everybody who lives here can play, but you got to want to be on the bus with them for, for 24 hours. So that's a big factor. And then um, the other one would be, um, Pulling people in, some of your favorite people in from other cities. I have a buddy in Baltimore, Barry Caudell, one of my oldest friends. Changed my life with a piece of music that he played me when I was a freshman in college. Um, I love the guy. We had a band together in Baltimore. If I had, if I could, I would call him for the gig. So that, but that would mean flying him in from Baltimore right. to Nashville to catch the bus, or mm -hmm. by, from Baltimore to the city we were playing. So it's really all according to how much. It's not how much money the artists are making. Because I think on the touring thing, they're all doing pretty good. It's how much money they want to give away yep. <laughs> for your services. So it's it's yeah, that's kind of how it works. Okay. But I will generally pick the people, you know, everybody I know who I'm friends with can really play their horn. Uh, the, the key factor is, do you want to jump on a bus with them and right. spend that kind of time with them? And so that that's really a big factor for me. That's, that's totally fair. Yeah. So of all the people that you've had a chance with the exception of the ones you've kind of spoken about already um what would what would you say are kind of your highlights of your career um with records you've played on um people you've played with um 1994 would was my first year uh that i was on a grammy nominated record and we won actually it was four that year so i got thrown into the fire wow. shirley caesar she's a old school uh, gospel artists that okay. it's just um, Lloyd who I've referred to a couple times he when he listened to her when he was a kid he thought that's what God's voice sounded like like a female and she's just this power little teeny lady powerhouse singer that's super memorable because I remember the session it was like really hard and then I remember you know because I wasn't I wasn't thinking about Grammys or any of that kind of stuff at the time but I remember when, when Doug Moffat, who's passed now, a saxophone player here in town, called me and said, hey, dude, we're on a Grammy-nominated uh, record. <laughs> just like super nonchalant. Yeah, well, that, he was nonchalant about everything. That's just kind of his, his tone. He was monotone all the time, super laid back, great player. 
Um, love that guy. I miss him a ton. But he called and told me. And I was like, well, what does that mean? And he's like, and he kind of explained it to me because I, I just really didn't know. And then found out that it was four that year. It's pre-social media. Now it's like, you know, the first round of the Grammys is like, if you know somebody who's a Neris member and you have a song and you give it to them, they can submit it. Mm -hmm. And so technically you're on the Grammy ballad. But there's like tens of thousands of songs. Right. right? And they narrow it down and all that kind of stuff. So um, now if somebody, you know, if somebody submits a song, they're like, my Grammy nominated record, you know, and so it's like, cool. it's a little bit different, you know, um, for those people who, who don't understand the process. That was a huge one for me. Um, I played a concert with Winona that was televised to, I have no idea how many people, but it was the first event at the Texas uh, Motor Speedway when they built it. Oh, very cool. 330,000 people. Wow. wow. And they had fire uh, hose cannons. Like the, pe the 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 crowd moved, of course it was alive, but it moved in these waves like this. Like and I'm standing on stage, I'm nervous because I'm on TV, but I'm looking out and you you just can't see the end of the people. And, it's just wow. this, and they had these hose cannons that were just spraying these people because people were passing out because it was so hot. That was super memorable. Um, oh gosh. You know, uh, my first TV appearance, mm -hmm. my first big TV appearance, which is kind of a funny story. Again, that Beth's heard a million times, poor thing. <laughs> I'll buy you lunch, honey. I love you. <laughs> um, so everybody in the... So my dad, when I was in high school, and I was old enough to stay up till past 11 o'clock, we would watch The Tonight Show together with Johnny Carson and Doc Samerson. A doc, you know, trumpet player, and mm -hmm. had a big band, and, and my dad, I could see him sitting in that wingback chair, one arm up with his leg crossed underneath, possibly having had a, a very large gin drink, possibly. Uh, and he would say, you know, one day, boy, you're going to be on that show. And I was like, sure thing, Dad. You know, Whatever you say. Have sure. another yeah, have just... another swig. <laughs> And we would watch it together. And so so he called it. So that was probably in late 70s, uh, maybe 1980. So now it's 1994, and uh, we're on tour. And it was during the Julia days. So um, Julia Roberts would come out, you know, all the time. And, of course, that was right after Pretty Woman and all that stuff, you know. And, and I was like, oh, my God. She was super sweet. And this dirty spot right here and this dirty spot is where she kissed me on the cheek. I have, I cover it when I shower. There you go. <laughs> um, so she was always really sweet. Um, so we, um, it was a Monday, we found out, and we had like Thursday off. So we were in Kansas City on Wednesday, and I think we were somewhere in Texas on Friday. So I called my dad on Monday, and I said, hey, uh, and this is, this, this, this was my dad. I said, hey, man, are you still watching The Tonight Show? And he's like, nah, you know, ever since Carson got off, I, I don't really care for that new guy. And I said, uh, I said, okay, well, um, in, in the conversation, you know, maybe, how about if you watch it on Thursday? I told you, I don't like that guy. He's a jerk. <laughs> I said, well, Dad, I think you should watch it. Well, why should I watch it on Thursday? And I said, because I'm going to be on the TV show with Lyle Lovett. And this is what he said. Great, I gotta go. Click. <laughs> Hangs up the phone. I'm like, dude, you're like Babe Ruth. You know, you pointed out to the outfield and then you hit the ball and it went out of the park. You called your shot, right? Very, very sort of, what the hell's going on here? And I didn't think anything of it. We get to Thursday and, and uh, it was amazing. NBC Studios, the old one out in LA. and. You know, just thought that there were still pictures of Carson, and I knew the trumpet player that was playing on the show. It was just nice. fantastic. It was such a great experience. And we flew out there with Julia on a prop plane, mm -hmm. two prop planes. I actually sat on the toilet in the back, not on the toilet, but, you know, in the right. toilet space. And it was a bumpy ride, man. I just thought, I knew we, this is it. I'm going to get, I'm not going to get fired. I'm going to die. That's um, so we, we, so we, we land and we get there and we go in and, and we, we actually snuck around the whole studio, which you're not supposed to do. 
And now they know. And now now they know, right. You can come get me 30 years later, right? (laughs) Um, But it was so much fun. Like, I think it was like all my children and one life to live and all those. So cool. You know, and we were like, this is the bed where the Constantines, you know, blah, blah, blah. It was just crazy. (laughs) It was so much fun. And we did a little uh, covert tour. And so I was the only guy in the band that had never done a big TV show. Right. Right. And, uh. I got a new trumpet that day from Chris Calicchio out in L.A. And, you know, like with any instrument you play, you know, you got to kind of fiddle around. I decided in my infinite young 29-year-old wisdom to play it that night on the show. And it was a horn feature called Penguins. So we're getting ready to start. And this uh, blonde-haired stage manager, I I can never remember his name, but he was the nicest guy to us. As we're going on, so it starts out on the drums. We had rehearsed it. It's a live taping. So it's in front of a live audience, and if you screw up, you can't go back. That's what goes on the air. Pee in my pants. My my summer wool buttoned all the way up to the neck and, and started on the drums for four bars, and then the first shot was the end of my bell and my gigantic head, which could, uh, could uh, block the light of the sun. Um, and that stage manager goes, five, four, don't worry, Vinny. It's only 40 million people and points at us. Oh, man. I, I mean, talk about hysteria. Of course, the rest of the band, you know, laughing. And I was just like, <gasps> and, and the, the only reason I was nervous, the only reason I'm ever nervous uh, when, I'm, when I'm on TV is because my parents were watching. I didn't care about the other 39,999, you know, none, just those two people. And so <clears throat> we did the show. And we got, we were leaving that night. And uh, so we, we drive in limousines to the airport and I'm expecting to get on these little prop planes. And um, they had, they had hired, Julia had called Universal and gotten a Gulfstream G4, which was sitting on, on the tarmac with these big lights shining down on it. Right. And we got on it and there was a, there was a, person that took care they had food and booze and julie was sitting up front with lyle and we sat in the back of that plane and played craps you know just rolling dice like a bunch of damn degenerates and uh and so the end of the story is show went off great no mistakes thank 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 goodness about 20 years later i'm at thanksgiving with my family we're sitting around the table dad's over here mom's over here all the kids you know and I'm telling this story about when dad said, great, got to go, click. And my mom says, oh, you don't know the rest of the story, do you? And I'm like, really? 20 years later? Your father hung up the phone and sat there and cried for 15 minutes. And I'm like... And you never knew. Really? You, so- you, you waited 20 years to tell me this? I mean, I've been telling this story. People all over the world hate you because of this. <laughs> So that was the, that was the, but that was my dad, you know what I mean? He was really good at making money and making sure we had everything we wanted, but sort of stoic with the, uh, with the, I love you stuff. But, I love that. Isn't that a, isn't that a that's, great story? That's amazing. It's only 40 million people. Go. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. As you play this brand new trumpet. So mean, I so, so mean, <laughs> such a mean person. Yeah. So there you go. That's, oh. yeah. So those are kind of. Those are some of the those are some of the highlights. There's a bazillion more when we go to lunch I'm or sure. have coffee, y'all. I'm sure. You know, I, I want to hear all about yours. I don't want to talk about mine anymore. You know. That's, that's, <laughs> this is it. This is my. <laughs> there was this one time I was doing this podcast with this guy. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having for coming me. in. Thank um, you. This has been a blast. I love it, guys. We're going to be back next week with another episode, Trumpet Vinny. Right on. I'm going to link, uh, I'll link to your website, to all of your stuff. Please go check him out. Um, Fantastic. Amazing. Thank you very much. We're going to be back next week. See you later, guys. Recorded at 2300 Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, original theme music by Gary Wood.